destined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us. We did not come to gather to hear a man speak. We came to worship the living God with our songs and our prayers and our gifts and with the conscionable hearing of your word. And we do confess and believe that when the people of God are gathered in the house of God on the Lord's day and the man whom God has appointed stands up and speaks from the word of God that something happens that is more than merely natural. It's not just giving a talk, not just being entertained. It's that your spirit comes down and takes that living and active word and works in our hearts, whatever you have purposed for it to work. So we say, Master, speak, thy servant heareth, waiting on thy gracious word. Amen. <clears throat> I hope you're not sick of hearing me talk about South Dakota, because you're going to hear it again. Uh, one of the things that Western South Dakota is known for, unfortunately, is a numerous and robust and very persistent population of a species of wasp known as the yellow jacket and they are everywhere in great numbers. The local college mascot of Black Hills State University in Spearfish, South Dakota is the yellow jacket. And they aren't too bad in the spring and as you go through the early summer they begin to get bigger and more numerous and more bold but in the late summer and in the early fall of every year they swarm and um, as the nights get colder, they seem to sense that their lives will soon end, and frankly, they go a little bit crazy. My wife is one of these people who, for some reason, likes to eat outside, and you would walk outside with a plate of food, and you would sit down, and before you could take the first bite, you would have a plate full of yellow jackets eating your hot dogs and whatever else. I mean, they were just everywhere. We had an apple tree, and Never did get any good apples off of that tree in the whole 13 years I lived in that house, but man, it sure fed a lot of yellow jackets. And they'd go and they'd get inside of the apples and they'd eat the pulp out. It wasn't quite so bad in town where we lived, but if you lived on the edge of town near the prairie or out in the country a bit, boy, is it a challenge. Because in the late afternoon as the sun was beginning to set, uh, my church was on the edge of town there. And and my office uh, door, one of them, faced the west. And they'd, they'd swarm on that side of the building. And I, when I was homeschooling, I'd set thermometer, thermometers on the, in the windows outside of the west side and the east side for a lesson one time, trying to teach the children about the difference in temperature because of the sun. And, and it, I looked on there one time, it was 115 degrees on that side of the building. And the, all the wasps were over there, all the yellow jackets, and they were just swarming and they'd buzz and you didn't want to go out there because they were just everywhere and then the sun would go down and they'd start crawling into every nook and cranny in the building 
that they could find. And then in the morning, I would get up, I'd come into the office, and it would still be chilly and cold, and I'd turn on the lights, and the lights would warm up the crawl space, and I'd, I'd find 12 or 13 of them in my office that I had to kill before I could go about my duties. Sometimes they'd get up in over the sanctuary, and and uh, they managed to live up there almost in suspended animation for long past the first frost. And uh, then they'd come down when you turn the lights on, especially those recessed can lights, they'd warm things up and that'd wake them up and they'd come down through into the warm sanctuary and they'd start buzzing around. I remember one Christmas Eve, we had a yellow jacket buzzing around and buzzing around and I guess he hadn't had anything to eat in a while because he suddenly got tired and stopped and dropped right on somebody's head and promptly stung them and it was you know annoying but it was all the time every year it, as I said it wasn't so bad in town but a couple of times the same thing happened at my house specifically in the kitchen because we had recessed lights in the kitchen too and for weeks in the fall we would kill yellow jackets in the kitchen over and over again we had small children we didn't want them to get stung and I was going to throw a bug bomb in the attic at night just to nuke them and I ran into a frustrating problem. I could not find the attic access in my house. And I looked everywhere for it. I knew there had to be one because at, on the outside there was a gable end vent and had an electric fan on a thermostat in there. And, and I knew somebody got up there and put that fan in there and had serviced it, but I didn't know how they got in the attic. And so I just, I tried and I tried for years. I tried for five years. I intermittently hunted for that attic access, and for five years, I utterly failed. And there really wasn't anybody I could ask. The guy that built the house was dead. And then one year, I was moving Evelyn back into one of the spare bedrooms so that she and Jordan could have separate rooms, because Evelyn likes to sleep, and Jordan is a talkative insomniac, and that's not what you want when they're three and four years old. And I was putting the bed together, and my shirt caught on the trim of this weird recessed shelf in the wall, and it kind of pulled out with my shirt. And I thought, oh great, here's another thing I need to fix. I just pulled the shelf out of the wall. I didn't even know I could do that. And I pushed it back in, and I heard it click, and I went, huh. And so I grabbed each side with both hands, and I pulled, and the whole shelf came out, and there was my attic access the whole time. And what an attic it was. I mean, I get excited about things sometimes that are dumb, but I was really excited about this because it was clean. It had plywood all over the floor joists. It had electric lights on a wall switch, and it was really big, and we have way too much stuff. And our basement was completely full, and I said, hey, honey, come here and look. And, and she came upstairs, and there it was, the attic access, and she immediately hatched a plan to fill it with the tubs and tubs and tubs of clothing that we used to have so that we could free up some basement space. And then you didn't have to haul the clothing up three flights of stairs to the, to the bedrooms out of the basement. And so she filled that attic with clothing and I filled it with a few other things. And, and that was such a great blessing because then if we had any further wasp issues, I could just deal with those myself. You see, the, the minor blessing that was that attic had been there the whole time. I just didn't know how to access it. And the access had been right in front of my face for five years. I just didn't recognize it. 
I only discovered it in the providence of God by accident. And I think for many of us, perhaps most of us, that addict story is going to be a kind of a parable for what we're going to discover from the scriptures in the next few weeks as we explore what Paul calls here the sealing of the spirit in Ephesians 1.13. That there is a good thing to be discovered, that it was right there the whole time, that you didn't know how to access it, even though at some level you knew that you needed to, and you did not recognize the way in, even though it was right in front of your face the whole time. So let's lay some groundwork with some basics that will probably take the rest of our time today, and we'll take these things up again in a subsequent Sunday if the Lord spares us. Let's start by looking at the concept of sealing. Now, this is not sealing like the ceiling. This is a seal, the application of a seal. In biblical terms, what does a seal do? In the ancient world, a seal had three main functions. And we still have these functions. And we have kinds of seals to, that, that verify and, and that fulfill these functions. First of all, a seal is that which authenticates or conveys authority. And we see this today in our modern world too. When two people draw up a contract, or like when I was in hospice and we had patients who were at the end of life and they wished to make uh, decisions about end of life care and medical interventions and things like that. And so a document was drawn up specifically to address those issues. And then one of our social workers was a notary public and she would go and she would witness the signing of that. That, that document said what was going to happen and what wasn't going to happen. And then that document was signed by the interested parties in the presence of that notary and that notary pressed his or her seal into the paper or they stamped it somehow with a special stamp. If you order a copy of your birth certificate or your marriage license for some purpose, like obtaining a driver's license or a passport or something, very often the document can't be used unless the seal can be felt in the paper itself. And that seal says, in effect, yes, this is really the person in question. It authenticates the document. Or sometimes it conveys authority to a person from a superior. So, for instance, I have a certificate of, uh, of ordination which gives me authority, which is conveyed by my presbytery, and that authority is to preach and to baptize and to celebrate communion and to marry and to bury. And that certificate of ordination acts as a seal. It conveys authority upon me from the presbytery, recognizing me as one who is qualified and who is appointed and authorized to do those special things and to fulfill those special functions. So a seal conveys authority or authorizes. Second of all, a seal can be used as a mark of ownership. A seal is a mark of ownership. When you come into South Dakota on whatever highway enters the state, there are signs, these little brown signs, and then there are stations on the highway, and the sign says, Brand Inspection Area. 
And if you're hauling livestock, you have to stop. And a state official who works for the brand board uh, has to look at the animals that you're hauling. And all of the brands in the whole country are registered in a brand book. And that book shows the brand itself. It has a picture of the brand and the name of the brand owner and his or her city and state, and then where on the animal the brand is applied. So the brand book is on the internet like everything else these days, and I'm just gonna, I don't know, yeah, can you turn that on? It's on, can you show that slide, do we have it? I can't see anything from here. Yeah, hold on a second. Yeah, sorry, we've got this watermark on here, that's Pro Presenter's way of saying give us money right now, so. Um, so you see here on the bottom, if you can see, it's kind of light blue. Um, it's, it's got this bar, bar, C. That's how you say it. Now that brand belongs to a friend of mine named Gary Kamak. Uh, his granddaughter and my daughter played together. He lives in Union Center, South Dakota in Meade County. And it, the brand is always applied to the left rib of his cattle. And my daughter used to go out every year because the Kamak family is a big family. They've been there since, I don't know, the 1870s or 1880s, ranching in that area. And, uh, and they would go out and, and, and Evelyn was often invited to go out and brand with them. And that was a big celebration time for them. And if anybody's driving around and they've got a trailer full of Barbar Sea cows, they better have something that proves that they're Gary Kamak's people or they better have a certificate of sale signed by Gary Kamak, or they are in a lot of trouble because the presumption is that they are stolen cows. Please change slides. And this is the trouble that you're in. You see that brand is a seal. It marks ownership of the thing that is sealed. Finally, a seal can also be used for security. In the old days, before envelopes that you sealed by licking the adhesive, the envelope would be sealed by dripping wax over the fold and then stamping it with a seal. And the, the signet ring was originally designed to be that stamp for an individual. And if the seal was broken when you received the letter, you knew that somebody had been burglarizing your mail and had read it before you. And we still have this function today too. When I drove a truck for Airborne Express, I drove a box truck between Columbia, Missouri and St. Louis. And I would leave Columbia at, at night and I would go to the airport in St. Louis. But before I'd leave, they'd put an aluminum seal on the freight door. It was just a strip of aluminum with a number stamped on it and a one-time locking mechanism that couldn't be undone. You had to cut the seal in order to open the door. And the seal went on in Columbia, Missouri, and it was broken at the airport in St. Louis where my freight was unloaded. And that way they could guarantee that the freight in that truck had not been tampered with during transit. Now these three main meanings of the term seal, authenticity and authority, ownership and security and safety, they help us to understand what is meant by our sealing with the promised Holy Spirit. Now it will also help us and it will be a significant piece of the puzzle to, to realize that the Bible also speaks of Jesus being sealed 
by God. In uh, John chapter 6, and I'm going to invite you to get your Bibles out and just open to John chapter 6. We have in John chapter 6 the story of the feeding of the 5,000. It's actually the story that was part of our children's sermon this morning. The feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus feeds them, he heals them, he does all the things, he's tired, he tries to withdraw, and the crowd follows him, primarily it seems from John chapter 6, because they were enamored with the prospect of endless free lunches of loaves and fishes. And then in John chapter 6, and verse 26, we read something interesting. Jesus is trying to tell them that the, that the lunch isn't the big deal there. And Jesus answered, verse 26 of John 6, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He says then, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. God the Father has set his seal on Jesus. In other words, Jesus told the crowd that they should believe on him savingly and listen to him because God the Father had sealed him. And in effect, he's saying, it's clear that I am the Messiah, the Son of God, because God has placed his seal on me by the mighty signs and the wonders that I do and by other things that God has done that testify to my authority. So for instance, when Jesus was baptized, God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then again on the Mount of Transfiguration, a voice from heaven comes down and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And three times in the scriptures, that voice spoke to those around him of Jesus and his identity. That was God's seal on him. Jesus tells us that he didn't speak or act on his own. That even when he did his miracles, that wasn't on his own power. He was full of the Holy Spirit and those works that were being done by the Spirit were being done through him by the Spirit. And when he expounded the scriptures, everyone recognized that he spoke with a power and with an authority and with a wisdom that was beyond anything that people had ever heard. And they knew this guy's never been to college. He's never been to seminary. Our most educated professors of the law can't hold a candle to him. And they knew just by hearing the scriptures unfolded by Jesus, there was something great here, something unusual, something supernatural. And that was by the Holy Spirit that he did that. When John the Baptist was in prison and he was confused and he was despondent at the prospect of his coming execution and the things that he thought the Messiah were going to do didn't seem to be getting done and he sent his disciples to Jesus to ask him if he was really the Messiah or should we expect someone else. Go tell John, replied Jesus, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. Those were the things that the Old Testament said Messiah would do. And that was God's seal. 
it authenticated Jesus and his identity. Bishop B.F. Westcott, the 19th century Anglican Greek scholar, who was a very godly man, put it like this. Him whom the Father hath sealed means that God solemnly set Jesus apart for the fulfillment of a responsibility and duty and authenticated his identity by understandable, perceivable signs. So in other words, the way God sealed Jesus was to send the Holy Spirit upon him to produce things in his life that even his enemies were forced to grapple with because they were obviously something different. So that even though all of the lying forces of hell were let loose upon the Lord Jesus, God's purposes would be carried out in him and through him, whom God the Father had sealed. Now surely this means for us what it meant for our exemplar and our pattern and our model, the Lord Jesus. In other words, his sealing should tell us something about what our sealing should look like. And I think when you read the New Testament honestly and just read it without any preconceived theological commitments about these issues, you will be forced to say that it seems to be that what Jesus describes happening to his disciples is happening. And it seems to be what happened to his followers as well. In other words, they were recognized as something different and special because God the Spirit wrought something in them that the world looked at and had to say, something's happened here. We can't explain this. So track with me here. Examine the logic of my argument and judge whether I've made my case. Seals authenticate. Point number one, seals authenticate, identify ownership, and are a surety or a guarantee that the thing sealed has been delivered without being tampered with. You agree? Yes or no? You say. Say yes? Any no votes? Very good. Point number two, Jesus described himself as being sealed by God. God's sealing of Jesus came by the activity of the Holy Spirit in his life primarily, and this sealing served to authenticate Jesus' life person and message it identified him as belonging to God in a unique way as God's only begotten son and it served to say this message and this messenger are holy and entirely from God neither the message nor the messenger has been tampered with it hasn't been changed it can't be changed for instance by Satan or by error or mistake and you must either accept the whole thing and believe or reject the whole thing and be damned that's my second, it's a long point. So yes or no, does that make sense? Yes, okay. Point number three. This sealing activity that authenticated Jesus wasn't something inward and private, accessible only to Jesus. Or maybe something that happened to Jesus, but he was completely unaware of it himself. In other words, it, it, the sealing of the Holy Spirit wasn't like an asymptomatic case of coronavirus, where the person tests positive, but completely looks unaffected to the observer, and he himself feels no different than usual. Rather, this sealing of the Spirit produced something in Jesus that everyone could see. Everyone marveled at and was astonished by and was unique in their experience. 
Even the magicians of the day couldn't hold a candle. You agree? Yes or no? Okay. Fourthly, Paul describes the believers in Ephesus as well as the believers in Corinth, which is in our call to worship, as those who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Yes or no? That was a little quiet. Okay. So based on your own conclusions about these four facts, does it seem to be without foundation to say that the sealing of the Spirit, which is available to us today, should produce something in our lives which can't simply be explained naturally and which marks us out as God's people and which authenticates our identity and grants authority to our master. That's the conclusion I come to. I'll let you answer that one in your head privately. In other words, shouldn't we expect that the sealing of the Holy Spirit, if we have had it, would produce an effect that was noticeable. So the next question that we have to explore, and after we've done this a little bit, we'll adjourn for the day. Does the sealing activity of the Holy Spirit take place at the moment you believe, or does it take place at some interval of time, be it short or long, after you have believed savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the question. That's a big question. And let me be clear here. The question is not, is the Holy Spirit active in the child of God's heart when they believe? Of course he is. You cannot believe savingly in Jesus Christ without the Holy Spirit's ministry enabling you to believe. Rather, the question is, is the Holy Spirit's work in your heart when you believe the sealing of the Spirit? Or is the sealing of the Spirit something different than the ministry of the Spirit that regenerates you and enables you to believe? In other words, is there two things? I believed on Jesus thanks to the Spirit's regeneration, and then at some interval of time, be it short or long, I was sealed by the Spirit, which produced in me a different and recognizable effect. That's the question. Now, here's what's at stake here. It is a well-established fact that professing Christians in our day are virtually indistinguishable from the world when you query them about their beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors. And the question is, why? Why is that so? Why are we in such bad shape as a people? One possibility is that we have a lot of people who think that they're saved, but they aren't. And I think that in some measure, that's actually quite likely. But when you look at the statistics from, say, George Barna, the number of professing Christians who are virtually indistinguishable from the worldlings is on the order of 90%. So 90% of the people who claim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior don't think, don't believe, and don't behave much differently than people who make no profession of faith in Jesus Christ at all. Now, I am the crankiest of grumpy Calvinists who shouts the phrase total depravity at the, at the drop of a hat. But even a pessimist like me has a hard time believing that nine out of 10 professing Christians are going straight to hell. Another possibility 
is that Christians have forgotten what the Bible says about the necessity of training and spiritual effort so that we might become Christ-like. And once again, I think that that is not untrue. As a matter of fact, I've given the rest of my ministry over to reacquiring that knowledge, appropriating it for myself, and teaching it to others. But fundamentally, what this is, is a recovery of the old doctrine of sanctification. And sanctification is, always has been, and is described by the Bible as a lifelong, spirit-assisted process where we come to behave differently because we're being transformed on the inside. It's an ongoing process. But the Bible doesn't speak of the sealing of the Spirit as an ongoing process. It speaks of it as an event which happened to the believers at a point in time and then was finished. Third possibility. The third possibility is that there are ministries of the Spirit, there are gifts of the Spirit, which are available to all Christians, which are subsequent to the Spirit's work causing us to repent and believe savingly on Jesus Christ. That these works of the Spirit are not necessarily automatic. They're not monergistic, to use the Reformed term. They might be synergistic, like sanctification. They might require our cooperation. They might require some kind of effort on our part. In other words, they might be more like sanctification, which requires us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, than they are like justification, which explicitly requires that we don't work, that we don't even try to work, because that will damn us. We simply receive salvation as a gift. And maybe this gift or ministry of the Spirit is an aid to our sanctification. And if we don't know to seek it, we might miss it. Maybe you're not living the Christian life you wish you could live because you're missing a key source of power found in the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Maybe the sealing of the Spirit is like this. Maybe the sealing of the Spirit is what happens, for instance, during true revival. When many people's sins are not only forgiven, but their lives are radically changed in ways that baffle even the unbelievers. Maybe the reason we're so weak, that we're so joyless, that we're so powerless, that we're so worldly, is because we're missing an experience of the Spirit subsequent to conversion that would be noticeable and amazing and unexplainable and powerful. Maybe this is kind of like my attic in Sturgis, unavailable to me because I didn't know where the access was, even though it was in plain sight for five years. Now, at this point, some of you are probably getting quite nervous, which I think is funny. And at the same time, some of you are sitting back smugly saying, well, of course there are subsequent experiences of the Spirit that are visible to everybody. It happened to me years ago. And I'm going to tell you, if you come to me with that stuff, I'm going to call you on it, because unless you're living a life of amazing joy, love, peace, purity, wisdom, and power, a life that even your enemies are astonished at and have to acknowledge, then I probably don't want to hear about it. You see, one of the greatest dangers in the church today is to take our experience and our life and say, 
this life that I'm living right now is the normal Christian life. There's really not very much wrong with me. I'm not missing very much. Oh, sure, I could do better, but I'm doing pretty good. And this is the life, the life I'm living right now is the life that Jesus expected his followers to live. Really? Really? Tell me this, where are the rivers of living water flowing from within you? Jesus said you would have those. Where is your love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and your self-control? Jesus said that would mark them. Where is your wisdom? Where is your ability to control your tongue? Where is your unstoppable zeal to win lost people? Are you really a light in the darkness? Are you really a city set on a hill? Where is your joyous and sacrificial service to God's church and his people? Where is your radical sacrificial love for your fellow believers? Are you claiming that all of that's pouring out of you? I'm not seeing it anywhere, me included. We're like people who shot an arrow at a blank wall, walked over to the wall, and drew a circle around the arrow, and then congratulate ourselves because we hit a bullseye. The normal Christian life isn't the life that normal Christians are actually living today. It is the life that Jesus identifies as the norm for his followers, and that's totally different than what's happening around us and among us. The normal Christian life today, the normal Christian, is living an abnormal Christian life by the standards of Jesus Christ. Now our time is all but gone for today, but wait just a minute, worship team. Next week, if the Lord spares us, we'll come back together and we'll examine these things further together and you can decide if I've made my case, but I wanna close with um, a little bit of a story. Now, I don't know if he's watching right now or will be later today, but I, I have a friend named Donald Martin who is in Scotland and apparently he has nothing better to do on a Sunday afternoon. It's five hours later over there, so he watches our worship sometime. And my friend Donald, he's a retired minister, um, is from the Isle of Lewis, which is in the west, off the western coast of Scotland, the Hebrides Islands. I've only been to Skye. Lewis is further out. He can only access it by ferry. And in 1949, something amazing happened on the Isle of Lewis. And I've met people that were there. They've told me about it. There were these two little sisters, 85 and 82 years old, bent over with arthritis, blind from cataracts, godly women who were prayer warriors and one of them received a vision you see the church in that day was like the church in our day half empty and the young people were off playing football and dancing and in this vision she saw as she was praying one day she saw her little parish church full of young people praying and praising jesus and she said the lord wants to send revival and she went to her minister and she said, the Lord wants to send revival. And her minister had enough sense to know that this was a godly woman who wasn't given to all kinds of weird fits and, and running off in different directions. 
and, uh, and he listened to her. And he said, well, what do you think we should do? And she said, I think that you and the officers of the church, the elders, should get together and pray twice a week for three hours at a time. And my sister and I will also get up at 11 o'clock at night and we will pray every night from 11 to 3 a.m. for revival. And they did. And this went on for a number of weeks. And the woman became convinced. There is an evangelist over on the Isle of Skye. He needs to come here for 10 days. That evangelist's name was Duncan Campbell. And she, they invited Duncan Campbell, and he said, no, I can't, quite, I can't possibly make it during that time. I've got uh, something happening here on the Isle of Skye. And, and the pastor went back and said, he's not coming. And she said, well, that's what man says, but God says something different. So she asked him again. Then they asked him again. And then the whole thing in Skye fell apart because of the tourist board wanting all the hotels. And so here comes Duncan, and he gets off at the dock, and he's met there by a minister and two elders. And one of the elders looks at him and says, Mr. Campbell, are you walking with God? And he said, well, I can tell you that I fear God. And the elder said, well, that's good enough, I guess. And they were going to stay at the, the, the pastor's house called the Manse. That's what the name of the Presbyterian pastor's house is. And, uh, and, he, and the pastor said, before we go to the manse and get you your supper, I know you must be hungry and tired, can we stop by the church and you can just address the people there? They're waiting for you. So he went and he found a crowd of around 200. And he said, uh, he said, okay. And so he prayed with them. He introduced himself. He preached a brief message. And afterwards, everybody left. And he was there with one of the deacons, a young man. And the young man said, um, that was nice, but that wasn't what God wants. Let's pray. And so this is now 10 o'clock at night. And they begin to pray, and they pray for about an hour. And I pick up with the story here. When everyone ha with everyone having departed the church, Duncan Campbell and a young deacon being the only ones left, that young man, knowing that God was going to do something much more that night, in the middle of the aisle, said to Campbell, nothing is broken out tonight but God is hovering over us. He's hovering over us and he will break through at any moment. And that young man lifted his hands and he started to pray, oh God, you have made a promise to pour water on the thirsty and floods upon the dry ground and you're not doing it. And then he intensely began interceding in prayer for a considerable period of time. Then he collapsed to the floor. At around 11 p.m., the back door of the church opened and a man entered saying, Mr. Campbell, something wonderful has happened. Mr. Campbell, we were praying that God would pour water on the thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. And listen, he has done it. He has done it. Will you come to the door and see the crowd that is there? It was then that Campbell witnessed many hundreds of people entering the church. No one had invited them. They had been drawn sovereignly by God at that late hour of the evening. By 12 midnight, the church was completely full. On this same evening, there were about 100 young people at a dance in the county hall. And during the dance, God suddenly fell upon them right at the time when the young man was praying in the aisle of the church. And the music at the dance hall stopped and the young people being overcome by a conviction of sin fled the hall as if they were fleeing from a plague. 
they made their way to the church. In addition to these hundred young people, there were hundreds more who had already been in bed, but simultaneously, without any explanation, they got out of bed, they dressed themselves, and they went running to the church. A hunger and a thirst for God had overwhelmed the people in the area. In the church, the gathering crowd began singing the psalms. See, these are free church people. All they sang was the metrical psalms, a cappella, this very old-fashioned kind of Presbyterian. The church that would seat over 800 was packed. People in the aisles and in the pews were on their knees crying out for God to have mercy. That meeting continued till 4 a.m. There were no altar calls. There were no appeals to accept Christ. It was just a sovereign work of God. And several of those who were saved that night became ministers. At 4 a.m., as Duncan Campbell was leaving the church to go to the parsonage where he would spend the night, someone approached him and asked him to go to the police station instead, as there were at least 300 people who had gathered there. During the one-mile walk to the police station, he saw people all along the road kneeling and crying out to God in repentance, pleading for mercy. Upon arrival at the police station, Duncan Campbell didn't preach a sermon, but the crowd that had mysteriously gathered themselves there were crying out to God for mercy due, due to the overwhelming conviction that their sins were sinking in. Many of those assembled had come in buses from locations up to 12 miles away. When they asked why they had come there, they didn't have an answer. There was no cell phone texting. There was no WhatsApp. There was nothing. They just started showing up. They just said they had a hunger in their heart to go to the village of Barvis, where the church was located. And God did a mighty work there, and then it began to spread. And there were some people in a neighboring parish, in a neighboring town, a village called Arnall. And there was bitter opposition from the other Christian ministers in that town to the revival and to Duncan Campbell in particular. And it was centered around this issue that we've been discussing today. The leaders of the local church who were in favor of the revival knew that all they could do was pray. And so 30 of them, together with Duncan Campbell, went to a local farmhouse and began praying. At about midnight, Campbell told a man in that farmhouse that God wanted him to lead in prayer. That man prayed for about 30 minutes straight, and then he paused, and he looked up at heaven, and he said, Oh God, do you not know that your honor is at stake? You promised to pour water on the thirsty and floods on the dry ground, and God, you're not doing it. There are five ministers in this meeting, and I don't know where one of them stands in your presence, not even Mr. Campbell. But if I know anything about my own poor heart, I think I can say, and I think that you know, that I stand before you as an empty vessel, that I'm thirsty. Thirsting for thee and for a manifestation of thy power. I'm thirsty to see the devil defeated in this parish. I'm thirsty to see this community gripped as you gripped Barvis. And I'm longing for revival in God, and you're not doing it. I am thirsty, and you promised to pour water upon me. And then after a pause, he said, Oh God, your honor is at stake. I now take it upon myself to challenge you to fulfill your covenant engagement. 
And with that, the granite house shook like a leaf and a jug on the sideboard fell onto the floor and broke and the dishes on the dresser rattled. And then Campbell testified wave after wave of divine power swept through the room. At that exact moment, the spirit of God swept through the village and the people were awakened from their sleep. They got dressed and they made their way to the church crying out for God to have mercy. One of them was a 16-year-old named Donald McPhail, and he was converted that night. And it is believed that more souls have been brought to Christ through his prayers than through all the sermons of all the ministers on the island. Here this morning I found a video on YouTube of Duncan Campbell telling his own story in Canada sometime in the late 50s or early 60s. I put it up on Tabernacle's uh, Facebook page. And you can hear in his own words what happened. Wouldn't it be wonderful if something like that happened here? Wouldn't it be wonderful if God came down upon us with power and if he started with the church and with us and our sins, it is now time for judgment to begin with the household of God, says Peter. If we were to say, oh Lord, on an empty vessel, pour out your spirit upon us and use us. Heavenly Father, I've said many words they are true and good and right I'm going to trust in you to hammer them home and if they are not I ask that you would cause them to be forgotten in Jesus name that we pray Amen